Second Peter, living on earth with a divine nature. We're continuing this morning with when sin becomes fatal. We started this last Sunday morning. The text is 2 Peter 2, verses 10 to 16. <clears throat> 2 Peter 2, 10 to 16. And it jumps right into a half sentence, but I will try and go back and frame the context a bit, so just be patient there for a minute. And especially... Talking about God's judgment, God's ability to judge and execute judgment in a righteous fashion on all sorts of examples that he listed in the verses preceding. And then he says, and especially those who indulge the lust of defiling passion and... They despise authority. They're bold and willful. They do not tremble. So you can see, uh, despise authority, bold and willful, do not tremble. You can see the kind of sinner he's talking about. Where it's not just the sin itself, but it's, it's what righteousness represents. There's a, a rebelling against it. They know the facts, and they despise the facts. They know the facts, they rebel against the facts. And, that, and, and they're not afraid. That's what that means. Don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Next slide. But these... Like irrational animals. Look at creatures of instinct. So he talked about defiling passions. If I had it on the same slide, I'd make an arrow between instinct and passions. There's this inward thing that drives them, and, and they, they refuse to uh, resist it. Instincts, passions. So they have desires that don't line up with what they know to be true of God's will and way, and they rebel against God. Creatures of instinct. Irrational animals. That can't be politically correct, surely. Born to be caught and destroyed. Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're blots, blemishes, reveling in their decept, decept. They're deceived. They're not right. They're just arrogant. They're wrong, but willful and proud in it. While they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery. This isn't just a sexual thing. This is adultery the way those that worship idols spiritually are called adulterers. You adulterous generation, Jesus says. James says, too. Uh, adulterous in the sense of not faithful to God. It could be a sexual sin. It could be idolatry. It could be materialism. could be any number of things. Eyes full of adultery. Insatiable for sin. That's quite a phrase. 
that's what they are in themselves. Here's what they do. They, they entice an unsteady soul. So they make what they're doing look attractive. That's what a tight enticing is. They're not, they're not coercing or forcing. They, they draw in. It, it looks attractive to the outsider. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Wow. Forsaking the right way. Again, they know. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice. And here it was successful. Restrained the prophet's madness. And Peter hopes that that could happen here. But he's not optimistic. Let's pray. We sang in that opening hymn, we sang, Awake my soul and sing. And it's possible for our bodies to be awake where we sit and our souls to still be sleeping. Holy Spirit, come and awake our souls. Awake inside to what you want to do in our hearts and lives so we don't miss anything. Bless your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we studied the most destructive sins that can ever be committed. And we studied what makes sins especially deadly and damning in the first point of last week's message. Willful sins. Sins, sins uh, that become more carcinogenic because they're persisted in even against the truth. That's what Peter means in that 10th verse. Especially those. Especially those who indulge the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Bold and willful. Do not tremble. All sorts of people fail. All sorts of people fall and are broken hearted. All sorts of people can be reached by the truth. That's not the problem here. This is different. So that was point number one last week. Willful sins against knowledge and against authority. That'll be up on the web. You can look at that if you want. So today we're going to look at points two, three, and four. Point number one last week. Point number two. Sin becomes fatal when people actually begin to boast in their wickedness. It's in verses 12 and 13. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as a wage for their wrongdoing. They they count it. They counted a pleasure to revel in daytime. I want to look at why he says that. They are blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. So you see, you see the boldness in their sinful activities. It, it says they revile 
even in areas when they're demonstrating nothing but their ignorance, verse 12, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, so that they do wicked things and they do them with no attempt to hide their sin. And that, in the daytime, that's why he says that. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. When you revel in the daytime, public, before people, openly, what that does is it gives you a false sense of righteousness in sin because it, it, it gives the appearance of being sort of true to oneself, right? Honest. I'm, I'm a what you see is what you get kind of a guy. I'm right up front. I'm not like those people in church. They're as wicked as I am, but they pretend to be righteous. Not me. I'm right up front. I'm truthful. So far from feeling shame, it says they, 13, they counted a pleasure. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. I, I don't know when it happened. But we now live in a world where people feel sin is acceptable as long as the sinner is open about it. Like, it's as though the only sin you can commit is hypocrisy. But there's all sorts of other sins <laughs> besides hypocrisy. So suddenly sin isn't wicked as long as I'm proud of it. If I'm proud of my sin, then you should all be proud of me for being so open and so honest and so true to myself. It may not be the way you want to live, but at least I'm honest and transparent about how I choose to live. It's the people who condemn other people's sins. Those are the ones who should feel ashamed. Intolerant. Judgmental. Let's be clear about it. Let's be clear. The Bible never looks at openness about sin as a virtue unless it's repentance. The Bible never looks at openness about sin as a virtue. It looks at contrition over sin as virtuous. But the fact that some people sin proudly and openly, as Peter says, in the daylight, it's only a sign of their hardness of heart. Even if you won't forsake your sin, at least have the minimal standard of decency to be ashamed of it. I was thinking this morning, I was going over this in my office. I was here early going over this. Do you remember Michael W. Smith's song, I Believe? I mean, I know it's old now. Do you remember that line, and fools who march to win the right to justify their sin? Anybody remember that? Is it just me? Come on, put your hand up if you remember that. Okay, I feel a little better. I know it's a while back, but it's not like ancient history. It's not like pre-war. I was just thinking as I was working on this, I would, I would bet you, you would never get away with a song like that 
today. And that the church would rise up against a Michael W. Smith song like that. The church would rise up, much of it, and say, it's judgmental. Who are you to condemn these people? That's the shift. That's the change that's happened in the last 20 years. So Peter says when sinners lose the ability to blush, it's not a sign of honesty or integrity. It's only a sign of the lowering of their moral level to the animal world. That's not me. That's in 2 Peter 2.12. Look at it. But these, like irrational animals, <laughs> creatures of instinct, if it feels good, it's the way I'm wired. The Bible says that kind of sin deserves a particular form of God's judgment. You get that? Even from the prophet Jeremiah, I was reading these words. This is God speaking, all right? to his people who are stubborn and rebellious. Not just wicked, but stubbornly wicked. God speaks through the prophet. Therefore, I will give their wives to others. This is God going to do this, not Satan. I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They've, they've healed the wound of my people, saying, peace. Peace. There is no peace, the prophet says. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. Look at Here it is. They did not know how to blush. Right in your Bible. They did, they did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. The eye there is the Lord. Away with this notion that the wrath of God is just sort of the consequences of sin, not something God actually does. I don't know what Bible you're reading. It's so fitting for our times. I mean, look, look around you. Look at the signs people carry. Look at the causes they march for. We've become a world that admires sinners who try to justify wickedness. We admire them. We're proud of them. Philippians. Paul talks about the very same thing. This is a theme in the scriptures. For many of whom I have often told you. So this kind of preaching, like, like I'm doing here, Paul says, I did this with you people in Philippi over and over again. We talked about this. For many whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. This isn't just talking about what they eat. It's, it's those inward des- instinct. Peter says they run by instinct. Inward passions, their, their bellies. Down in here, the stuff in here runs the life. And then this phrase, and, and they, they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. That's what Peter 
has in his heart as he warns these churches, it, it, gets, it gets harder and harder to stand up for truth and righteousness when others promote the cause of sin with such pride and effectiveness. Let me say that again. It gets harder and harder to stand up for truth and righteousness when others promote the cause of sin with such pride, revel in the daytime, with such pride and effectiveness. So, so here's the problem. Christians who used to take their stand with, with a host of other believers are suddenly forced into the closet to, to stand on their own. It's one of the most successful ploys of the devil. Point number three. It is because these people can no longer quit sinning that they comfort themselves by luring others into the same hopeless situation. I get that in verse 14 of our text. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. It, it doesn't, that's the thing. Eh? The sin doesn't fill them up. So the, 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 desire, the desire doesn't go away. Y- you, don't, you don't quench sin by fulfilling it. You increase the desire. So, so the emptiness just grows. That's, that's the paradox. The emptiness grows. The hole gets deeper and deeper the more you try and fill it up insatiable for sin. So here's what they do. What what do you do when that's your situation? It's hopeless. Well, here's what you do. You entice unsteady souls. Recruitment is the last comfort to those hopelessly bound in darkness. Recruitment is the last comfort for those hopelessly bound in darkness. It's It is hell's final protest against a holy God. Did you notice this? Even in Romans, that classic passage in Romans 1.32. Though they know, this is people sinning against truth, right? People who know. Rebelling against authority in our text. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, that's, that's what they are in themselves, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's the enticing unsteady souls. Approving of them. Affirming them. That's Paul's echo of the truth that Peter states. He warns these churches that these kind of people prey on unstable souls. That's in verse 14. They entice unsteady souls unsteady souls so so they look for people who are going through particular times of fear discouragement people who fear the growing social price of countercultural discipleship i don't want to be unliked i don't want people thinking i'm one of those hardcore christians I don't want people thinking I'm some right-wing fanatic. I don't want people to accuse me of being judgmental. I don't want people to think I'm intolerant. On and on and on it goes. So so there's this this mounting price 
that's brought to bear on anyone who, who, who dares to kind of stand up in a countercultural direction, and that, that puts an unsteadiness. Puts an unsteadiness in our hearts. They entice unsteady souls. They look for people who may be just on the edge of maybe becoming impatient with God about something, an unanswered prayer. They look here. They look for people who have been hurt and wronged by others in the church where people weren't acting like Christians toward them. They look, these people look for people like that. They recruit them, sign you up. You shouldn't have to put up with that. They look for people who face financial setback and ruin. They look for people who really aren't sure of what they believe or why because they've, they've come to Christ at some point but never really gotten into studying the word of God for themselves and are not plugged into a local church faithfully. They look for people like that. That's what Peter means when he says they look for unsteady that's the word, unsteady souls. He, he doesn't mean they're mentally deranged or not bright. He means people who right now, right now are shook up. They're knocked off stride, who are beginning to doubt or question, who are, are upset or offended or angry, particularly vulnerable to compromises. And Peter says there will always be people in the church. That's what he's talking about. We might as well deal with the text honestly. These are people who feast with you, he says. They gather around the table with you. Always be someone offering something to let you continue the way you are. They have eyes full of greed, 14. Hearts trained in greed, 14. Point number four, we'll wrap up. Learning a lesson from Balaam's donkey. It's in verses 15 and 16. Forsaking the right way. So this is where it starts. There's a, that's the verb. There's something they do. They forsake the right way, and then they go astray. That's going astray is second. They have followed... The way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. It's one of the great Old Testament stories. I can remember as a kid. We used to have some pretty high-tech stuff. In Sunday school, it multicolored flannel graph board and I can remember seeing the donkey the story of Balaam and his donkey is told in numbers 21 through 24 and in a nutshell it goes like this Balaam Balaam is a prophet and he's sought out by Balak, don't get them confused. Balak is king of the Moabites. Balak, king of the Moabites, he has this massive problem. There's a huge army advancing against him, and the army is too big for him to handle. 
And like most people who face a huge problem, King Balak gets religious real fast. He sends for the prophet Balaam to come. And he wants Balaam, under the power of God, to put a curse on the enemies. The prophet Balaam takes this request to God, and God says, No, you are not to go to King Balak. And at first, the prophet Balaam, his sense of faithfulness to God, it just causes him to refuse King Balak's offer. I'm not coming. I'm not coming. And then Balak, the king, he sweetens the pot. More money, more riches, more promises. And then Balaam foolishly says, okay, uh, let me pray about this again. And later he agrees to accept the job. Compromise always comes about in degrees. Mental note. Mental note. So on the way to see King Balak, the donkey on which Balaam is riding suddenly comes to a halt. There's a narrow passageway hemmed in on both sides. The donkey stops, and Balaam is in a hurry. And he's furious at his dumb donkey. And he yells and he shouts, swats the donkey on the head a few times, and then something amazing happens. As Balaam is there with this temper tantrum, trying to get the donkey going, the donkey turns around, cranks his neck, and then this human voice says, Listen, pinhead. Why are you hitting me? Can't you see the angel of the Lord standing right in front of us with a sharp sword? Use your head. And then finally, God opens up Balaam's eyes to see what the donkey saw all along. And that's the only thing that saves Balaam's life. The whole thing is an amazing story. See, I would think just the fact that the donkey turns around and speaks to me would be enough to say, it might be that God is in this thing. But the donkey speaking strangely, is not what changes Balaam's mind. It's only when the an- the, the God shows him the angel with the sword that Balaam says, oh, okay, we better stop. I can't get my head around that. He was actually prepared to sit there and argue with this donkey. He would argue with his own talking donkey before he would change his mind. He's arguing with a donkey. Before he'll change his mind and obey the Lord. Do you see how sin gets a hold of our rational thinking? Do you see what Peter means when he talks about people who despise authority? Stubborn people who won't hear the truth? Can you think of a better example than Balaam? No wonder Peter uses him. It's a perfect case for Peter's point. Now stop and think of Peter's point in telling this story. 
He's talking about how people can become almost animal-like. Verse 12, animals. How people can become almost animal-like in the pursuit of their own instincts, their own passions, their own desires, how they justify them against all authority. He's talking about how people can fill up their lives with so much sin, so much dishonesty, that they can lose the ability to turn to God and be freed from their sins. Balaam was told by God not to go to King Balak. But in his greed for wealth and fame, he gave in to the pressure. He forgot the true God, and he goes off to seek Balak. He just willfully pushed God aside, and he does his own thing. God can't get through to Balaam. He tells him not to go. God can't get through to him. But God can get through to a donkey. You see the psalmist? (laughs) Don't be like mules that you have to put a bit in their mouth and turn them right and left. Don't get like that. Don't get like that. Are you getting like that in some area of your life? Has God talked to you more than once, twice about something you're still not listening? Then, Then you're a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. I'll never forget when the Holy Spirit said that to my heart. I could name the day and the place. God can get through to the donkey. The angel, in fact, doesn't have to say a word. The angel just stands there, holds up his hand. That's all he does. And the donkey instantly responds obediently by coming to a dead halt. The angel says, halt. The donkey halts. The donkey instantly obeys the will of God. What's wrong with that picture? Balaam does finally have his blindness restrained. 2 Peter 2.16, a speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's, listen, madness. Madness. And so Peter pleads with Cedarview Community Church. He warns us about lowering the bar and our holy commitment to staying true to God's word when so many aren't. He warns us not to tolerate anyone who would attempt to distract us or bribe us or cause us to doubt either God's available mercy and grace and help or to deny the fierceness of God's wrath and judgment. And, 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 and here it is. Peter says, quite simply, if you willfully turn from the truth, if you willfully turn from the authority you know over and over again, you lose the ability to respond repentantly. That's not the kind of truth that should bring celebration. It is the kind of truth that should make every one of us in this room go, oh God, oh God. Shouldn't it? Oh God, please. Please don't ever let that happen to me. There's different moments in a church. There's high praise, and there's times when our knees ought to shake. If we're smart. When sin becomes fatal. Is that up there on the screen, that verse? Let's read this out loud together, all of us. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news 
failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We sing song after song and pray prayer after prayer about hearing the voice of God, about having the Spirit of God speak to our hearts. And it's easy to leave church with the impression that that was the whole measuring stick, the whole goal of spirituality, as though hearing God speak was an end in itself. It isn't. Hearing God speak can be disastrous. Encountering God. All of our songs about embracing God and hugging God and loving God and being close to God and seeing his face, all those things. Encountering God is never the end goal. Never ask God to speak to your heart, please. Never ask God to speak to your heart until you're absolutely sure with your whole being that it's your deepest desire to do exactly what he says. Do we all get it? Never ask God to speak to your heart until you're absolutely sure with your whole being that it's your deepest desire to do what he says. I grew up in church singing it. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And everyone said, 